You're listening to Are listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to discuss our June 2022 book club pick, Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. Um, this has been a book that's been on our radar for a while now. Um, it won a ton of awards last year, including the National Book Award for YA Literature, um, the Stonewall Book Award, um, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, among others. So definitely a much lauded story um, that we're glad to be able to read for, um, for Pride Month. That's true. I didn't even consider that it was Pride Month when I picked this book. <laughs> really? I just I thought really it was deliberate. Wanted... No, it wasn't. I mean, we've read like, like this past year, we read a lot of books by uh, queer authors mm. uh, for book club and also for author interviews. So to me, it was just like a normal day, <laughs> a normal <laughs> day in the park. I was like, I really want to read this book. This book came out on paperback not that long ago. Like we... Um, I remember we had a chance to talk to Melinda Lowe when the book first came out, but scheduling didn't work out. So I was holding on to that regret for a while. And I was like, oh, we should read the book for book club so that I can actually read the book. Yeah. You know, gush about it because I really <laughs> did like this book. It was a really good read, and I'm excited to talk about this with you. Um, but before we get started, just a general spoiler warning. Um, as always, during our book club discussion, we'll be discussing the book in its entirety, which means we assume that you've already finished the book before coming to listen to us. Um, so if you have not finished the book yet, just know that everything in the book is on the table. So um, if you want to avoid being spoiled, um, go read the book. You won't regret it and come back and listen to our thoughts. Um, but with that, let's get started with our discussion. Uh, Rira, why don't you read us in with the book chat description? 17-year-old Lily Hu can't remember exactly when the question took root, but the answer was in full bloom the moment she and Kathleen Miller walked under the flashing neon sign of a lesbian bar called the Telegraph Club. America in 1954 is not a safe space for two girls to fall in love, especially not in Chinatown. Red scare paranoia threatens everyone, including Chinese Americans like Lily. With deportation looming over her father despite his hard-won citizenship, Lily and Kath risk everything to let their love see the light of day. Yeah. So Last Night at the Telegraph Club is a YA historical fiction slash romance. Um, there's so much to talk about in this book. Um, not just the central like romance between the main characters, but also the setting um, and just the general like political shit show that was the 1950s that um, we're somehow hurtling towards again in 2022. Um, yeah, I mean, Rebra, what did you think about uh, the book? Um, just before we get into like details about the book, I just want to uh, say Melinda Lowe is like OG Asian American <laughs> uh, writer. Like she uh, co-founded Diversity in YA uh, back in like 2011 with Cindy Pond, who is also like an OG Asian American pioneering writer. Uh, so many authors that we've interviewed on this podcast, they've also like said like Cindy Pond and Melinda Lowe were uh, great mentors to them. And um, it's just like I remember like back when I was a teenager, uh, Melinda Lowe's first book, Ash, came out and it was a um, it was a lesbian retelling of Cinderella. And I remember that being like really shocking to me because <laughs> I lived in Georgia (laughs) and, uh, you know, like gender studies was like not a thing. So I have like very uh, poignant memories, like very sharp memories of like Melinda Lowe and her career. And I was like really excited when this book was announced because I had never seen a novel about uh, queer lesbians of color in like young adult literature I'm not even talking about, like, queer Asian girls. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, like, just queer people of color set in any time before the 21st century. (laughs) And 
it was just so refreshing to me. Uh, it was so new. And uh, despite a lot of the um, the depressing historical context, I, I should say, it was yeah. very lovely to read. It was very, it was like very much a slow burn romance with a lot of like comfort in it, surprisingly. And I actually read this book through primarily the audiobook. And the audiobook was narrated by Emily Wu Zeller, who was phenomenal. <laughs> like, her voice acting was so good. And, like, for characters who had, um, like, Cantonese and Mandarin accents, like, she nailed those, like, perfectly. Like, I had a really good time reading it. It was, like, a nice... Not, I wouldn't say break, but... It was just a very immersive and educational and pleasant experience. Yeah. I mean, I will say the the central story is very, like, sweet, even though the setting itself was very stressful, right? Like, this was a time when you can be openly gay. Um, this was a time when people in the LGBTQ community had to gather in places like nightclubs because that was the only place that was protected under the law under like privacy laws um which again like are all things under assault in like today's political environment and i think reading this in june in the middle of everything that happened in june was really a really interesting time to take a look back at the 1950s at how far we've come but also how far how much further we have to go really right um but i did really enjoy the historical fictionness of it all 1950s America is a time, I mean, the Asian American experience in general is a story of migration patterns and waves, right? The people that the story is about are people that came to this country before either of our families came here. And um, it's interesting because in the 1950s, this was pre-Asian America as like even a term, right? Asian America as a, I guess, quote unquote, political identity didn't come into being until the civil rights movement in the late 60s. So um, it was really interesting to read and, and also listen. I also listened to the audiobook as well. Um, Mundalo using period accurate um, slang and vernacular. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> um, even I was like, oh, can she say that? But, you know, it was the 50s. Like they had no concept of like, you know, the N word or the, you know, Orient was not as bad as the N word, but also like it's a word that today we like, we listen, we hear it and we cringe a little bit because it's like, oh, because it connotates yeah, like, like it, what people see us as, right? Yeah. Like Orientalism, I think of it as the definition of Western perspective on Asian culture. And that's, <laughs> that hasn't been historically kind to us. And whenever someone calls me Oriental, because I still do get called Oriental oh. by like old white people <laughs> yeah. who don't know any better. Who I, I'm just like. Sometimes am they I, do. Am I a- like sometimes they preemptively apologize for like not knowing the right word. But it's like, then why did you say it? And it's either like, oh, Oriental or Chinese. And I'm like, I am neither of those things. But um but yeah. it was a little bit jarring re- <laughs> like reading the book at first, and I just got used to it because in my head I was like, historical context, this is how I mean they that word is even then. like People my parents' age still self-identify as Oriental. It just goes to show how, like, the cultural hegemony of, like, Western culture has, like, even infiltrated our own identities, right? Even acknowledging that Oriental comes from a profoundly racist place is a very recent thing, right? It wasn't until the late 70s where, like, Edward Said wrote um, Orientalism where people started, like, really confronting, like, the origins of it, right? Like, what does Oriental actually mean? Oriental means of a different orient, which means in like, I guess, semantic terms means something that is not normal. Right. Yeah. And it just bothers me that museums still use the word oriental in, uh, in like their department titles. I'm <laughs> like, why? Like update your language does not reflect history as it is today. Yeah. It's- but on the other hand, I did enjoy seeing like the Chinese American community of, San Francisco Chinatown in the 50s and how, you know, by then people were already into their like second and third generations of their family being in the States, especially in San Francisco, where the earliest like immigrants from China landed. Um, And it was cool to see like this bustling community 
that's still kind of dealing with the same shit that we're dealing with today, which is how do we prove to everyone else that we belong here? And going through the same tensions where, okay, we're either super proud of who we are or we try to assimilate. And how do we like reconcile that? I know. Let's do a beauty pageant. I, I think it's really funny because July 4th is only a couple days away. <laughs> and this book starts on July 4th, 1950 with the Miss Chinatown beauty pageant uh, that's hosted by the Chinese American Citizens Alliance. Uh, <laughs> and it's like an independent day picnic. And I was like, oh, yes, of course. To show that we are Americans, we throw a beauty pageant on Independence Day. (laughs) (laughs) But this is actually a real thing. Um, Melinda Lowe did a lot of research into the time period. She's also a San Francisco native. So if you go on her website, she has a lot of blog posts about... uh, like her research. And one of the blog articles was about the Miss Chinatown beauty pageant. It was just really interesting to me because back then, um, they didn't really know what it meant to have a Chinese American beauty queen because Western and Eastern beauty ideals are completely different. So they'll be like, oh, like the Chinese girl has to be like modest and, um, you know, very meek and not like outgoing because that was like the the ideal. Whereas like in Western beauty ideals, it's like, oh, someone who, you know, shows a lot of, you know, skin, who's well, confident. I mean, they have to be modest, but they also have to wear a chi pao or um, chung sam as um, it was referred back to in the day, um, which is a very slinky and like form-fitting dress. Yeah, yeah. Which is also a dress that wasn't historically... Like it, it's a dress that was like westernized because it was actually yeah. a very <laughs> loose fitting garment until, uh, you know, people until in, the white people got involved. Yeah, until until people <laughs> in Shanghai were just like, "What if we made this like skin tight and make it like scandalous with like the high slit?" I'm like, okay, well, even even this outfit is like colonialized. Yeah. and it's it's funny because the beauty pageant queen who gets crowned. Uh, in the book is someone who was considered lewd because she was wearing a strapless uh, swimsuit. And this is actually based on a real beauty queen, Cynthia Wu, who was also booed when she was crowned because people thought that she was too American. And I'm like, too American? (laughs) This is a pageant that's supposed to prove that you are American. So it is very duplicitous. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I feel like, again, it's still the same tensions, right? We're still facing the same tensions of how, how American can we be while still staying true to our heritage? And everyone has their own barometer on that. And it goes back to the fact that people like Lily and Lily's father, like Lily's father is like our dads. They came to the States for school or for work, and they've only been there for one generation, right? And so their connection to the country is within their lifetime. It's interesting because, you know, you're focusing on the Chinese-American community in the 1950s. 1950s is what? Five years removed from World War II. I think the Chinese Civil War is just like, I think it's just heating up, right? Like, I don't yeah, think... Yeah, it's just heating up. And that's why the community is like, okay, we need to prove that, like, the China that is uh, in power, right? <laughs> like, the true Chinese government is yeah, this. Yeah, the KMT, yeah. yeah. And you find a lot of people like Lily's dad, his situation is similar to my grandfather's situation in Taiwan, where he went to Taiwan for work and then ended up never being able to go home again because of the Civil War. And it's just, it's such an interesting time because also, like, concurrently is also McCarthyism is happening in Congress. Like, everyone is accusing everyone else of being communist, um, which, like, no one even knew. I don't think any of them actually knew what communism actually was. I think people nowadays don't even know what communism is. (laughs) They mistake communism for fascism. And I'm just like, like the boogeyman, right? It's like, that's not the same thing, but okay. Uh, But it's just such a interesting time and i think melinda lowe did a really great job um researching and portraying 
that environment that this queer love story is taking place in, right? Because like I mentioned, like, you know, the story between the characters is, it gets sweet, but the world itself is, it's a very stressful time to be like a queer woman, right? Yeah, it was really interesting reading uh, Lily's journey because, you know, like she first gets a clue that she might be queer by picking up this a pulpy lesbian romance novel and she sees the cover of two scantily dressed women and she's like, ooh, like there's something about this that is like resonating with me. And Representation matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of representation, that's what I was really impressed by in this book because of all of the intersections that uh, Lily is meeting because she's also like Chinese American during the Red Scare. And at the same time, you know, it wasn't a very, even though it's San Francisco, it was still a very hard time for the queer community. They had to mask themselves. And a lot of these bars were the only place where they felt safe. And I just thought it was really interesting that even in this safe space, Lily faced a microaggressions and she had to code switch and I was like man like it just it just shows that you know just because you are of one marginalized group doesn't mean that everything like just kind of it doesn't mean that you fit perfectly because even the way that some of the lesbians at the telegraph club discuss communism and the feds it's just so <laughs> casual whereas like lily's like this this is actually like very scary for me and my family my father's citizenship papers were taken and we can be deported at any time we're always scared for our friends families because they could just disappear and that's like not yeah. even a concern for a lot of these uh patrons so i thought it was really neat how melinda Lo like added that extra layer that we don't really see in a lot of queer literature for young people. Yeah. I mean, the fact that her father was literally served in the U.S. Army, had citizenship, but was still threatened with deportation just because he might be associated with a suspected communist. That was, I mean, I want to say things have gotten better, but honestly, like I've been threatened with um, getting my green card revoked when I was coming back to the country once by a border agent. Of course, yeah. I think he saw that I've been a resident alien for like 20 years and asked like, why haven't you got your citizenship? You know you can take this away at any time, right? I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. And, you know, there are actually American citizens who have been deported in recent years. Like, think of adoptees, for example. Like, they have citizenship, but they still get deported anyway because of some, like, crazy loophole. So it's yeah. not... It's not as far removed as we think, this threat. Yeah, like showing that you sacrifice or love this country is not enough for this country to love you back. Sometimes sometimes the country just hates you for some reason. And also this was during a time where, you know, like Japanese Americans were examined with such scrutiny because of World War II. So the Chinese American yeah. community is just like, oh, we are not Japanese. We are We're the super good Chinese. Asians. <laughs> We're the good Asians. Uh, so we've gone pretty far talking about the setting. Um, let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about our, our heroine, Lily. Uh, what did you think of Lily? Uh, like I said, with a lot of like, I think Melinda Lowe delivered on all of the nuance and intersections in an identity. Um, you have Lily, who is not only, you know, she's second gen Chinese American because her mother is also, you know, she's American. She was born in America. So it's interesting because she's Chinese American. She's queer. Uh, she's also very, very intelligent and wants to work for JPL and wants to go to the moon. And this is during a time where women were encouraged to not pursue higher education for the sake of leaving jobs for cis white men. <laughs> and also, it was during a time where women have to be extremely exceptional to be accepted into, uh, into really nice colleges because they're like, oh, only like the top 5% 
of um, women in their graduating class can be accepted or even like reviewed for their college application. So Lily has to go through a lot of masking. She has to do a lot of code switching. And there's so much she has to suppress just so that she could pass. So like she, she needs to pass her family Pass in her family as like the good Chinese girl, the obedient Chinese girl who like does all the chores and you know dresses modestly for church. And then, you know, like with her friend Shirley, Shirley's just like, well, you know, why would you want to go to the moon? Why do you want to go to college? Like, that's stupid. That's not something that women should be doing. And it's said out of like a lot of jealousy, but that was like the common way of thinking at the time when it came to women pursuing degrees in science and math. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to Shirley in a moment, I'm sure. Oh, my God, um, Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> I love that um, Lily's dream was to become a computer at JPL, which I know what that means because I watched Hidden Figures um, because the women there were computers. And, you know, back in the days, we didn't have like this laptop that I'm recording this podcast on, no, they had actual people who had to do all the computations for like the researchers at NASA and JPL. And that work was given to women. Like that was probably one of the highest positions a woman can um, achieve in like the field of rocket science. Right. And I did love that um, Lily had Aunt Judy, who was a computer at JPL, as a role model, as someone who can achieve something at the time that was the height of achievement for women in science and STEM, um, as someone that she could look up to and who was looking out for her as well. Um, I thought it was also funny because, like, Aunt Judy's like, oh, back in my day, I was the only woman in, like, calculus. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Lily's just like, well, I at least have one other friend. And Aunt Judy's like, oh, it's good to have an ally. Like, things have gotten better. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, just the addition of one <laughs> other girl in a math class is considered yeah. progress during this time. I also love that Lily was an avid fan of science fiction and she read like books by Bradbury and Asimov. And so I'm familiar with these names because, um, not just because we do a bookish podcast, but because there's this really great podcast series from the Washington Post called Moonrise, where they kind of chart the story of um, the U.S. space program and the first few episodes is actually framed around the advent of science fiction and how that inspired a generation of rocket scientists, including Werner von Braun, who is mentioned in um, this book as one of the heads of, I think, NASA at the time, um, who was also like a Nazi rocket scientist that was able to overcome his, you know, history of fascism by being someone that the Americans just really wanted to build rockets for them so they can go to space. Um, and I... Not to go back to the setting, but compare a story with the one of um, Chen Chusen, who is the Caltech rocket scientist who helped found JPL, who was suspected of being a communist sympathizer and deported back to um, China and ended up jumpstarting their rocket program. Um, it's just such a like, of course, right? Like you will forgive the white man, even though he was literally a fascist, but deport the Chinese man because you think he might be communist, even though they both have a lot to contribute to your goals. Um, the story of, I mean, it's just another example of how the U.S. has, like, inconsistent policies. But I like that Melinda brought him up as, like, look, this dude was literally a Nazi, and now he's the head of NASA. At the same time, for, for Chinese Americans, it's like, how <laughs> dare we aspire for these high-level positions? <laughs> I think, you know, having Lily be a fan of science fiction... And that leading to her um, interest in like rocket science, it was a really, it's something that to makes total sense. But because of the setting, because of the social and cultural, I guess constraints against her, it's something that she struggles with, right? Yeah, and I thought the juxtaposition between uh, Lily's friendship with Shirley and Lily's friendship with Kath in the beginning was just really, it was just really nice because. Uh, Shirley thinks that a career at JPL is just so far-fetched. And Kath is the one who says, actually, it's very possible. You just have to go to this college where, you know, we'll probably get accepted because we're super smart. And we just have to do these steps. And it is within our grasp. And just having one person just be, like, one person believing in you makes such 
a big difference. And just like having that one person say like your dreams are valid and the <laughs> things that you want are normal and they're not actually like so out of your reach as you think it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a a rite of passage, right? It's a it's a sign of growing up when you realize that the, the people you grew up with aren't necessarily the people that will stay around you for the rest of your life, right? And I think you know, everyone can have their own dreams, right? Like Shirley is entitled to aspiring to domestic bliss and whatever. Um, but I think what what makes Shirley kind of an antagonistic character is that she forces her her own dreams onto other people, um, which is the sign of like a toxic friend, right? Um, and also, think, she like questions uh, Lily's <laughs> sexuality, right? Constantly, she's like testing. Yeah, that her. part was pretty gross. That was really um, gross. I mean, it's I guess period accurate because even in that time, like homosexuality was seen as like a deviant thing that like you can fix if you want to, right? I mean, like, it's still stuff that people do now, you know, like people automatically assume that you're straight and it's still a behavior that we see today. I mean, I guess we can get into just Shirley as a character being just like, I wanted her to come around. Like I wanted everyone to come around actually in the story, but I knew that they probably wouldn't because, because of the times and because it's not, it's not a story about reconciliation with like the people around you. It's a, it's a story about reconciliation within yourself, right? And like the fact that like she couldn't see the parallels between her dating like a suspected communist, which would also put her family in danger, and Lily being a lesbian, um, that was really frustrating to read, right? Yeah, I I think Lily said it best towards the end of the book, where she says, "Shirley doesn't want me making friends with other friends." And I'm like, oh, my God, there's always that one person in your friend group who, you know, wants to be your best friend and won't let anybody else like take that title, even though it's a stupid title to begin with. And you can have more than one best friend. I mean, she just want change. Right. It's the core of like conservatism is just things are fine as it is. Why would you want anything different? Why would you want something that's different from the rest of us? That's different from me. Also, just Shirley being someone from the, from Chinatown and from, like, childhood, they've known each other uh, for a long time. It's like, hey, like, I'm your best friend because, you know, we both share the same identity. We've both gone through <laughs> our families being threatened with deportation. We know, like, our culture. But at the same time, it's like, like, Lily is allowed to be more than one thing. So when she's hanging out with Kath, Shirley's like, why are you hanging out with this white girl? Just doesn't make sense. Why are you so enamored with her? It's like, well, you know, like just because you share the same cultural background doesn't mean you're the same person and want the same things. And this is a mistake that a lot of um, people outside of our community make. I don't know if you I don't know if anybody has like experienced this, but just people being like, oh, you'll you'll be good friends with this person because they're also Chinese American or they're <laughs> also Korean American. And it's like just because we share the same culture doesn't mean that we'll be best friends. It's just not. Everyone experiences their culture differently and everyone like especially like I don't have that experience of like, oh, you're the only two Asian kids in this entire class. So you two must be best friends. Or, you know, if it's a guy and a girl, um, oh, you two are going to get married, right? But I do understand, like, the frustration of being told who you should be and the urge to fight against that. And growing up, that might be a a way to form solidarity. um, But as you get older and start maturing, part of being a good friend is just being there for them and not expecting them to do what you want them to do all the time, right? I, I think respecting people as individuals is one of the core, I guess, lessons you need to learn to become like a well-adjusted adult. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people miss the lesson. Um, what did you think of Kath? I love Kath. She was such a grounding presence in Lily's life. And I just love the way Melinda just wrote their slow burn romance because it was just so gradual. It was from like, oh, this person uh, thinks that my dreams are valid and she's also like really smart. And then it's like, well, she's been to the Telegraph Club, something that I've actually been really curious about. So it's like this 
it starts as like this blossoming friendship that turns into something more. And I just loved that transition. And just like the character development was just so good. And uh, I love how Kath just, the fact that like she's already uh, stigmatized in school because her friend was outed in like the worst possible way. Uh, But she's still able to carry herself uh, with dignity. I was like, wow, that's like a lot of like respect there. Yeah. I, so I liked that she was like a grounding presence for Lily to like hang on to. Right. And also that she was Lily's guide into the world of like lesbian clubs in San Francisco, that she was just like super chill the entire time. Right. She didn't really have any. Like she normalized everything, which is so reassuring you know like yeah because like you're living in a culture you're living in the days of people being like homosexuals are you know sexual deviancy it's psychological illness blah 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 and here lily is being friends with someone who is super chill and going to a lesbian (laughs) bar where she sees grown adults you know having jobs and you know having relationships and living their life to the fullest and she's like maybe being gay isn't as terrible as other people say so it's nice that kath is the one who really sets like the barometer for what it means to be lesbian during this time yeah at the same time there's a part in the back of my head saying well you know she's really only super chill because she doesn't have to worry about you know, not looking like everyone else, neither. Like, not fitting in in that way. Um, and I kind of wish the story of addressed that part of it because, like, it's something that, you know, as people of color in the U.S. and definitely something that Lily experiences, you know, that that's something that you constantly think of all the time. Um, and maybe part of why Kath can be so chill is because she doesn't have to worry about microaggressions even within the Telegraph Club. Yeah, like I said, people in the Telegraph Club, they're white. So the (laughs) way that they talk about deportation and communism, it's just so off the cuff. They don't care. But at the same time, I did like the fact that she was portrayed as someone who just wasn't super problematic and just kind of went with the flow. Like she totally was down for that ginger ice cream, which sounded really amazing. The food in this story, like many Asian American literature, I think, the the attention to the um, food description, pretty pretty good i really wanted those bottles i really wanted those uh everything that was made during that new year's dinner sounded amazing um i love that and i'm sure melinda did research on this too like the dishes that she described on that table that lily's mom um grace made for her dad are things that my family makes too like the shunyu the um the smoked fish like i know exactly what that is yeah i mean food is always going to be a big part of our culture so obviously it's going to be written in with uh lush details yeah Uh, i also really enjoyed the flashback like intermissions between the parts um that like you know a lot of these stories about mother daughter or like parent child relationships because we're seeing the world through the child's eyes we don't really get like the perspective of the parents and as we all know especially in immigrant communities um that have experienced war and trauma and displacement nothing's ever as simple as like my parents don't understand right and i really enjoyed that we saw the journeys of lily's mom dad and aunt um throughout the decades leading up to her birth Yeah, it did provide a lot of context to uh, Lily's relationship with her family and why her family would be so concerned about Lily coming out. And those are probably the most painful scenes to read in this book, where she comes out to her mom. And right before she does, she says, this is going to be the last time my mom looks at me with love and care and concern. And I'm like, wow, this is something that you know, Asian American queer teens go through today because there is so much emphasis on saving face in our culture. And also just what your identity is, is reflective of your family. And there's just like so much pressure, especially if you are an Asian American daughter. And I really felt the parts where she said like, 
like when her mom was like, you're a good Chinese girl. You're it's like, you can't be homosexual. Like, you're not my daughter if you're homosexual. And I was just like, wow. Like, I'm not gay, yeah. but I felt that. <laughs> I mean, those two chapters, one after another, first the confrontation with Shirley and then the confrontation with her mom. Are, it's like, like, I had to put the book down for a little bit before, like, moving on to the next part just because it's just so like you already have this really messy breakup with someone who's supposed to be your best friend but like with sure it's like okay that was something we saw coming a mile away but the confrontation with the parent is always like you know um it's like a critical important experience that i will never personally go through but you know two experiences through the eyes of this character that you know we've seen grow through the whole entire book and seen okay it's all led to this confrontation where she needs to decide whether she wants to be true to herself or not and she decides to be true to herself and face the consequences no matter how heartbreaking it will be right and there's nothing worse than like feeling like your parents don't love you anymore yeah especially if your parents are immigrants because you know how much they sacrifice and you know how much harder of course you know they they don't they won't let you forget oh they won't let you forget (laughs) like not even for one second but like she knows the complicated situation with her father in the citizenship papers and she knows what it will mean if uh the authorities find out that she's queer and that she um frequented a lesbian bar she's like oh my god you add (laughs) It's like, yeah, you add like communist uh, suspicions with, you know, sexual deviancy. Like my my dad's going to be out of a job and he's going to be out of the country. Like there's no way to. To just hide that if I come out. And yeah, I think that (laughs) is a fear that a lot of immigrant children who come out to their parents feel, you know, that fear has not gone away. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of queer youth become homeless, right? Because some of them do get thrown out of their houses. Some of them do end up on the street with no support system at all. Um, What did you think about their solution of just shipping her away to Pasadena? It was such an Asian parent solution. And I don't know. I just like knew. I just knew that her parents were going to send her away. And... You know, her mom blaming Kath for influencing her, for, like, bringing her to, like, the dark side. I was like, wow. Like, it's, like, this common perception that queerness doesn't exist in Asian spheres. And I'm like, there is a history of queer people in, like, China, Korea, Japan. Like, we've literally... There are, like, literal gay communities that have been recorded in history but they've essentially been like put in the footnotes because we want to pretend that that is not that is not quote-unquote our problem so that was like how much of that is also because of the spirit of um a certain religion yeah that too yeah the fact that they were christian as well oh man if you are east asian and your family is deeply christian it is it is a rough road um (laughs) I have a couple of friends from Georgia who um, came out and they were only able to do that after, you know, after college, after they moved out of their Christian family homes and they were in a more liberal state and it still wasn't easy. And, you know, if you think about it, like San Francisco was probably the most accepting of gay people back in the 50s. Uh, because Lana, who is like one of the um, Lana, who is the partner of Tommy Andrews, the male impersonator slash singer at the Telegraph Club, she says, oh, I'm from like Ohio. And I came to San Francisco because I heard that they were like kind to folks like me. And I'm like, well, wow. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like San Francisco is a place that became a haven for um, the queer community. But you can't run away to San Francisco if you're from San Francisco. Exactly. <laughs> like even quote-unquote liberal spaces like you still have to contend with a lot of like homophobia and racism it just doesn't magically go away because you're in a liberal state or city and i heard that melinda Lowe, like in her um in her author notes at the very end of the book she says that she has some chunky author notes in the back it was like a whole other chapter i mean you can you can go onto our website and it continues (laughs) but 
her saying that it was really difficult for her to track down historical resources about like queer Asian Americans in San Francisco during the 1950s. Like it's like it's sad because you hear glimpses, you see glimpses of it in like footnotes and that's just it. Like they don't expand on it. So much of our history is written in a white centered con like like context. So there is this misconception that like, you know, queer people like queer people of color did not exist until like the 2000s, which is totally a lie. So after she comes out to her parents and runs away and it gets taken back by her aunt, her parents decide to send her away. And I thought it was a really interesting way to um, parallel the journey of her being like displaced against her will. Uh, with her father and the community of Chinese Americans in San Francisco who were displaced because of the Civil War. And and the fact that that feeling of like being forced to leave your home because of something that's not your fault is something that they'll share now. When I made that connection, I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's well done, I guess. And that's not the only thing she shares with her father. Her father refused to lie to the FBI about his patient being a communist. And, you know, Grace, her mom, says, like, why didn't you just fucking lie and say that you think that he was a communist? Don't you know uh, what a difficult position that you put this family under just because you decided (laughs) to protect a stranger? And Lily could have easily lied to her parents. She could have thrown Kath under the bus or say that, you know, oh, this is just a phase. Like, her parents are insisting. But for her, it's like, I can't lie because... It is just so much more painful to suppress this part of my identity. And the more that they're telling me to deny it, the more, like, the more I can't. And that is something that she shares with her dad. Yeah. I think that's when you realize that her and her dad, are they're pretty much the same person. Like, they, they share the same personal convictions, right? And I love that scene where, you know, she's packing for, you know— like her train ride to uh, Pasadena. And her dad says, I know a Chinese lesbian. She is like a phenomenal doctor, but she also, you know, was estranged from the community and she lives alone and she, it's a very lonely life and we don't want that for you. It's such a shell of a life. And he genuinely thinks that he's doing the right thing. And you can tell that it's coming from a place of love, even though, you know, his perspective on what it means to be gay is completely wrong. And I feel like if this was told in modern day with all of the resources available, like parenting books on like how to like parent a queer teen and just the open visibility of um of queer people. I feel like Joseph is one of those parents who would come around like fairly. I would like he would be quietly so. supportive in the background and it would take like a number of years for him to like openly support Lily. But he's definitely the parent who's just like, oh, I'm going to give you money, like secretly sneak it into your bank account and just pretend that this is an issue. I'm not going to like go after you and be aggro. I want to believe that. But at the same time, he's also like a doctor at like a Christian hospital. So it's funny. <laughs> the doctor that he mentions is actually based on a real person. She was suspected of being a lesbian. And the FBI reportedly confirmed that she was. And there aren't <laughs> that many notes on whether the Chinese American community there, like what their reaction was to it. I'm guessing that it was not very good. But also she was like the first, like doc- first Chinese doctor to yeah. like, like to co-found a hospital in Chinatown. So it's like, well, you need the Western medicine. She is a very prominent figure in this community. So you can't really <laughs> like openly go against her identity. And like, you know, I want to I want to believe that she really wasn't that lonely. I'm sure she was partying all the time out in like, you know. Dude, single people like, <laughs> like single people, queer people, like they live with okay money, lives. With doctor money, you know? Yeah, yeah like really, like <laughs> domestic bliss is a lie. Um, <laughs> you don't have to be married to be happy. You don't need to have a partner to f- live a fulfilling life. 
And it's just a lie that's been fed over and over through the generations. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we conclude our discussion of last night at the Telegraph Club, um, any last thoughts? Any last anything we missed talking about? I feel like we we talked about a lot, but there's also a lot in this book. Like yeah, a lot I feel of like we could go layers. on for hours to just like <laughs> dive into um, into each subject with more nuance, but. Um, it's summer and we're both sweating, yeah. so we obviously can't and we don't have the time to do that. <laughs> yep. I like the ending. I know that um, some people might disagree with it because it isn't, you know, like a straightforward happy ending. There's a lot of strings that haven't been tied, but I really liked it because it was realistic, but also there was hope to it because it's like, oh, they're growing up and, you know, they're still trying to find themselves and it was just really, I don't know, it, it was just kind of like a warm, comforting hug before you say goodbye to someone, you know? Yeah. Like knowing that things will be okay no matter what shit you have to go through. Yeah, I really like the ending too. Like I said, it, it's not a book where I ever had hope of her reconciling with, with her parents or with Shirley. Um, because that's just not how, especially in the 50s, how these relationships go. Um, but the door to reconciliation is still open, right? As people grow up and people reconnect. I want to assume that one day her her parents at least accept that their daughter is a lesbian and let her back into their lives. And I really appreciated the timeline at the end of the book where we learn that Lily eventually does work for JPL, right? <laughs> Meaning that she is, you know, she is pursuing her dream still and she isn't staying true to what she wants to do um it does make me think that um you know if her and kath are still together that kath will probably move down to pasadena because jpl is in pasadena there's no way she's like you know going back and forth right yeah yeah and kath says at the end that you know she likes the job that she has because she's working at an airport and she wants to be a pilot so i'm like sometimes you have different interests growing up and it's and you grow apart. And I'm like, I don't know if this relationship is going to last. But uh, like some of the characters in the books say, like, you never forget your first. And Kath was such a pivotal character um, in Lily's life. And I feel like that gratitude and bond is always going to be there. So, yeah. Yeah. So it has been teased that we will find out what happened to them in Melinda Lowe's next book coming out in October, A Scatter of Light, which is being pitched as a companion piece to um, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, taking place 60 years in the future in 2013. So, um, yeah. Now that I'm invested in this relationship, I, I'll totally read about another character just to see what happens to this, this character. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, as, like, I'm not queer, but as, like, an Asian-American girl, like, I've I could relate to the whole, like, you need to be the perfect daughter, obedient, and, you know, anything that you do outside of this construct that we have created, you are just bringing shame to the family. And I, like, could definitely relate to that and the frustrations with it. And just the fact that gender norms in Asian culture is, like, I feel like it's, like, twice as hard. You know, because <laughs> you're fighting two different battles at the same time. And I feel like Melinda Lowe really captured that frustration really well uh, with Lily and her thoughts. Um, yeah. My one criticism about this book is probably um, the flashbacks to Grace, Joseph and Aunt Judy. Um, I like them, but I feel like I didn't get enough time with them or enough depth with them. I wish I saw more of Grace's chapter because Grace was very interesting to me because she is born in America. She's uh, training to be a nurse and she wants to go back to China because Joseph kind of painted Shanghai to be like this wonderful place where she could, you know, blend in and be important and make like an important contribution with her Western education. And having that fall out because of the political situation in China. Like, I feel like I wanted to read more about that so that I could have more of a context to uh, Grace's relationship with her daughter. And with Aunt Judy, too, I just, like, there was this one really great chapter with her where they're um, 
like where Lily is with playing the diorama, with right? Yeah, the with the diorama. <laughs> and I feel like I could have used like maybe like one or two more chapters with Aunt Judy because I think she's a fascinating character as well, uh, who works at JPL, and you know she is one of like the pioneering women of, of science for like the Chinese women community. So I'm like, I wish I yeah. read a little bit more about these people just so that I could have like a richer tapestry that I could like look into <laughs> the family history, but it's not I mean, it was, exactly It was already a pretty them. hefty book. And I think, yeah, I would love, have loved to hung out with them more, but I think the glimpses that we got from them, like I kind of felt like we got the right amount. Um, I know some people on Goodreads, not in our group club, but like people on leaving reviews, a bunch of them said they didn't like the flashbacks at all, but I think it's because they couldn't relate to it. I, I kind of did some digging and they all seemed to be, written by not non-asian people um yeah yeah. i mean a big theme of this book is like being scared for your family and bringing (laughs) and being scared that you'll bring shame to them and it's such a big concept when it comes to asian families so of course you need the context especially when most of your readers don't really know much about this time period as well (laughs) because the american education system really glosses over a lot of like the McCarthyism and the immigration scare for our community. So, I mean, yeah. depending on where you live, I'm sure California covers it pretty well. But uh, New we Jersey and chapters. New Jersey and Georgia, no, we did not cover it like at all. <laughs> I seem to remember um, a whole like section, like chapter dedicated to McCarthyism, um, and then we also read supplemental materials on it too. But I was also in AP US history, so that's probably why. I don't know how uh, it was covered in regular history. Yeah. I think it's that it's a testament to a good story that you want more of the side stories, right? Yeah, yeah. More more side stories, more context, obviously. Um, and yeah. because I'm an Asian American reader, it's like, of course I am invested in the Asian American <laughs> characters more than the white characters in this book, despite that the fact that they are part of a marginalized group too but yeah i mean it's it is a intersectional book you know lily does deal with marginalization in, in like multiple ways um and obviously we and i identify with one of those identities more than the other but it was also a really good way for us to experience the the other side as well and you know to learn more about what life was like for the gay and lesbian community in San Francisco back in those days where people didn't have the right to really be themselves in public. And also you have to think about a lot of like back then interracial relationship, they weren't legal. Oh yeah. This was pre-loving too. Yeah. Yeah. So so you have that layer as well. So a lot of layers in this book, I think Melinda Lowe did a great job. And, um, you know, even as a straight reader, just like reading the slow burn romance, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly how it feels to have a crush on someone and to just gradually fall in love with them. I just thought that, that part was just so well done. And it's funny because in an interview, Melinda Lowe said, I'm more comfortable writing murders than <laughs> love stories. <laughs> well, um, let us know what you all thought of Last Night at the Telegraph Club on our Goodreads forums or on Twitter or on our Instagram. We always love to hear your thoughts on our book club picks. And like I said earlier in this podcast, uh, definitely check out Melinda's website. Um, the website URL is melindalow.com. And there's currently like six pieces on, <laughs> on just like the research process. There's... Um, there's like a guide to Lily San Francisco, so literal places from the 1950s that she like took direct inspiration from, um, a history of male impersonators. Like it's really great stuff. I highly recommend following up your reading with uh, checking out the blog posts. Yeah. Thanks to Melinda Lowe for writing such a great book. And um, congratulations on all the awards. Definitely well-deserved. And yeah, I'm very excited for the follow-up book. Um, We should try to get her on the podcast finally (laughs) to talk about it when it comes out. Um, I will write that email. Yeah, Um, yeah. All right. It is now the month of July. Uh, So, Rira, tell us what we are reading for this month. We are reading Before the Coffee Gets Cold by Toshikazu Kawaguchi, and translated by Jeffrey Trusselot. 
this is a book that is set in modern day Tokyo. Uh, where there is a cafe that serves carefully brewed coffee for more than a hundred years, but this coffee offers its customers a unique experience—the chance to travel back in time. And the book follows four visitors, each of whom is hoping to make use of the cafe's time traveling offer. And the catch is that their time traveling trip. Can only last as long as their coffee is hot, so they have to come back before the coffee cools, which is where the title comes from.、Uh, we actually had we actually had a different book in mind, but I was just like, no. After after the Supreme Court decisions, I was like, we need to read something else,、yeah. maybe a book that's not set in this country. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we did because I feel like this book.、Uh, I love the concept. Longtime listeners will know that I love time travel and sci-fi, so、um, I'm very excited to dig in this book. This is probably our first translated work in a while, right? What's、well, the last one? Yeah, in a while. Probably, yeah, Convenience Store Woman. I was. No, that can't be it. Hold on, I <laughs> like we need to we need to check because. Or was it Confessions? The Inugami Curse. Was it? Was, I kind yeah. Of, Was it really? I guess it was. That was our October twenty twenty one book club pick. What that felt like years ago, to be honest. Like, do you remember the last book that we read for the year of twenty twenty one? It was on Earth. We're briefly gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Doesn't that feel <laughs> like it was three years ago? <laughs> Had there does, been a、actually. couple of months? Oh, man. Lots happen. I feel like. I mean, do you even remember life pre-pandemic? I mean, I do because I do long for it. But <laughs> it also does not feel like it was. It was like two and a half years ago. It really、yeah. feels like like twenty nineteen feels like a different era. It feels like I was. It feels like it was ten years ago. Yeah, we were different people back then. We were different people back then. I was definitely a more patient and tolerant person back then. <laughs> Nowadays, I'm not. I am so. I am bitter. I am angry. I am not patient.、Um, well, I am excited to read this book.、Um, but you know, just a warning for those of you out there: this is not like hardcore science fiction. It's more slice of life. It's magical realism. So don't expect like time travel theories. <laughs> It's supposed to be a light read. It's barely two hundred pages, so it should be an easy breezy read for us. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we deserve a light read after the month we've had, right? Yeah, I mean, the、yeah. book that I had planned for us was about、uh, motherhood and a government reform program. For、Oof. bad moms, and I was like, "Oof!" Like that—that that is not gonna. And this was a book that I was really excited to read because it came out in the beginning of this year, and so many of our friends on Twitter were like, "We need to read this book for book club." Like, it's so amazing. And now I'm like, <laughs> "When am I gonna read this book?" Now I really do want to read it, but also, the life that we're living right now is a dystopia. Do we need more dystopian fiction? <laughs> We'll circle around. We'll we'll come back to it after a few months, maybe. Brownie、um, points to the people who can guess what book I'm talking about, just from the <laughs> hints that I've gave, given out. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to our discussion of last night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Low.、Um, I hope you enjoyed listening along. And yeah, again, please leave us your thoughts on Goodreads. We always love to hear what you think. And yeah, we'll see you all next time on Books and Boba. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu, and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba, and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to BooksandBoba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our Bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at BooksandBoba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening.
Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.